Hi everyone, my name is Kara and our Bible reading today is Joshua 2. And I'm just going to read verse 14 in the, because of our time. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab. Bring out the men who come to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may still catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the river, the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Brilliant. Thanks, Cara. Um, you would have received one of these on your way in. Uh, it's an outline. It's got the Bible passage on one side, which is a thing you definitely need. It's got an outline on the other side, which you may or may not need. Point four has gone a bit off the craziness. Um, and at some point along the way, I decided to subsume it into the, the first three points. Uh, so you'll just have longer chunks there and you can ignore um, that final point. Okay. Uh, my name is Matt, if you don't know me, I'm working here with the Christian Union, and one of the things uh, I get the privilege of doing is teaching the Bible, which is what we're going to do now. Now, I've noticed um, that you've protected yourself. I'm assuming that you assume that I'm a spitter, um, and I think six rows, yeah, I can't do it. So you guys have done really well. Good work. Because um, that's horrible, isn't it, right? When somebody's telling stories and they just start spitting at you, you've got to be polite, and you, you can't really say, hey, man, you just spat in my, in my mouth. That's gross. It's, um the other thing that I find really difficult when I hear people telling stories is when you realise halfway through the story that they're not going anywhere. You know those guys? Yeah, yeah some people really know. It's that, it's that one person at school every time and they start to tell the story and you're just like, yeah, here we go again. You're going to tell us about how you went to the shops and then how you went to visit your aunt and then how this happened and you walked your dog and nothing happened. Now, I'm sure you've all been in those situations before at school uh, and they tell the story and everyone's there and they know that this is awkward, but the person's just ploughing on. And then finally, the penny drops at a certain point and they realise their story's not going anywhere either. And then they say the classic line, but then I found $10. 
Have you guys ever done that or heard that? Is that a Sydney thing? Because it must have been something that went through my high school that at the moment they realised their story was irredeemable, they had to find money to justify telling it. And then we'd be like, okay, cool, we found $10. Joshua chapter 2, which is the story that we're looking at today in the Bible, is a then I found $10 kind of story. Uh, Last week in Joshua chapter 1, the thing that we saw is God promised to Joshua, the leader of God's people, that they would finally receive the promised land. He guaranteed it to Joshua. He made a bunch of promises. He repeated himself. It was very clear that this was about to happen. We get to Joshua chapter 2, and what do we see? Joshua sends out some spies to kind of suss out the land. Uh, They go, they come back. Nothing of note happens. And then if you look with me at the very end of the passage, the bit that Kara didn't read out there, chapter 2, verse 24, this is what the spies say to Joshua. The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. It's not even like then I found 10 shekels. There's, there's no point to the story. And so as you look at the big picture of Joshua, chapter 2 kind of doesn't really seem to advance the narrative anywhere. It sort of affirms the promises of God, and we can't dismiss that because that's actually the whole point of the book of Joshua. It's about God fulfilling his promises and how not one one of his words will fail. And so that affirmation is good for us. But, But in terms of the things that actually happen, well, the spies don't engage in any subterfuge. There's no bribery. There's no assassinations. They don't come back with insider information about troop deployment um, or watches and that sort of thing. They come, they do nothing to value add, and then they just come home again. And if you're anything like me, that bothers me. Why? Why would God give us this chapter if nothing big picture actually happens? And the answer is something does happen between the beginning and the end of the story that doesn't go anywhere. And it's of such special significance that the writer of Joshua stops, turns aside and tells a story. And so what we want to do today as we look at Joshua 2 is work out what is so special that the writer would kind of step back and go, we need to actually pay attention to this and figure this one out. So that's our plan for today. How about we start it off there in chapter 2, verse 1. This is how the chapter begins, and it is not a good beginning. Have a look there at the passage in front of you. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, if you know your Bibles, this is not a good way to start a story. Uh, Because when was the last time Israel sent spies to check out the promised land? Well, it was in Numbers chapter 13. Moses sent a bunch of people out, including Joshua, and 10 of the 12 came back and just went, those guys are too big, too scary, too nasty, we can't take them. They riled up all of Israel. All of Israel started going, God, why have you taken us out of Egypt just to get us killed? This is not what we signed up for. They rebelled. They stopped trusting God. So what does God do? Well, he punishes them. And he makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation has died off before they can enter the promised land. So already we're thinking spies going into the promised land, not a good thing. The other thing that I want you to notice is where they are sent out from. Uh, They come from a place called Shittim. Sounds dodgy, is dodgy, uh, because if you know your Bibles, back in Numbers 25, this is the place that Israel whored about with the Moabite women, committed sexual sin against God, And he punished them by sending a plague. And these spies have come from Shittim 
And now they're staying at the house of a prostitute. And you've got to be sitting there thinking, oh dear, this is not going to end well for Israel. Verse 2, things get even more concerning. Because somehow the king of Jericho has not only found out about them, but he knows where they're staying. So he brings out some men, sends them to Rahab's house, and they say to her there in verse 3, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. Now, notice the repetition down there in verses 4 and 6. She's hidden the spies. And so the only thing standing between the spies in her house and the men at her door is Rahab. And you can sort of imagine the scene, right? The king's men are kind of looking over her shoulder, trying to get a glance into the house and see if there's anything in there. She's standing there. She's probably starting to sweat. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, I didn't know. And they've left. The guys are probably hiding upstairs, possibly hearing the conversation downstairs. Kind of, you know, that moment when you're in plain hide and seek and your heart is just beating. It's like, oh, wow, I can't believe people can't hear this heart. It's going nasty loud. That's the sort of fear factor that's happening in this space. And just at that moment that you see in every movie scene where the person kind of reaches out to turn the door handle where the person is hiding, they're reaching out and they stop. And we see there in the passage, verse 7, that they stop and leave. They set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the Jordan, which is the way the spies would have come. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So, sigh of relief. We haven't been found out yet. But now they've got a bigger problem because the gate is shut. They're trapped. There is no way to get out even under the cover of darkness. Now, if you're one of those people who kind of emotionally uh, fuses with characters in books, so like if you read Harry Potter and you, know, you cried when, when Dobby died or something like that, and, and you're sensitive to the tension, sorry if I just spoiled the book for you, it's, um, it's not great literature, you're okay. Um, but you're kind of fused and like you're aware of tensions in the book, then this should be a tension for you. The question that this is leaving you with is, hang on, how, how do the spies escape? This is my big anxiety. And if you're alert to this, attention, uh, this tension, then you'll actually understand that something happens really strangely at this story that shouldn't happen. Because the writer takes the central driving thing that's pushing this story forward and he goes, I'm going to put this on the shelf. And we're going to ignore it until verse 15. Now, that really does your head in, right? Until you begin to realise that that's because the thing that you think is important isn't actually the thing that's important. The thing that's important is actually Rahab's speech and actions in verses 8 to 13. And it's here that we begin to realise that this story is not about the spies. It's about Rahab. And by looking into her and what she does... And why she does it, we get a precious insight into the God of whom we worship. So let's have a look at Rahab's speech. Uh, First of all, she makes a confession and she begins in verse 9. She goes up to the spies on the roof and she says this in verse 9. I know. Now note that. The Jericho police turn up and it's all, I don't know this and I don't know that. There's a whole bunch of deception. But here's the thing that she is certain of. Verse 9. 
I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, and here's her conclusion, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And I want us to realise the profundity of that statement. We live in a Western society, 21st century, and the thing that we take for granted is monotheism. So there is one God. And even if you're a committed atheist, all of your arguments seem to be against one God. But, but back in the BC, it was assumed that there were many gods. And each nation would have its own gods. So the Canaanites had Baal, uh, the Philistines had Dagon, the Ammonites had Molech, and, and Israel... Israel had Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And what was significant about all of these gods at that time, at least as the people understood it, is that they were all considered to be on the same playing field and on the same level. They each had their region, they each had their people and their patch. And so when the nations went to war and clashed, the gods would clash. But what Rahab is saying here defies that paradigm and affirms something that our God, the Christian God, has been saying from the beginning. Because what Rahab is saying and confessing is that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, well, he sits above all and rules over everything. And what has helped her reach that conclusion are the mighty works that Yahweh has done for Israel in helping them conquer the other nations. So if we look back, uh, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is actually God's desired result. He's actually speaking to the Israelites at this point. Uh, But Rahab, looking on from the sideline, gets it. This is what he says to the Israelites. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And now here are some key phrases. You might recognize them from Joshua 2 here. Out of heaven, he let you, you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after him and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Take a breath, God, use a full stop. Here's the conclusion. Know, therefore, today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And Rahab, looking on at the mighty works that God did to the Israelites, for the Israelites in Egypt, to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, she sees it and she gets it. And I want to say that this passage actually signals something for us to see and get. And it's not a good thing. This passage should make us afraid. Because God's mighty works, they declare his judgment. And of all of the mighty and powerful works that God has ever done, whether it's Egypt, whether it's the promised land, whatever it is, the mightiest and most powerful and the one that should terrify us the most 
is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't know whether that's a new thought for you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and, you know, like Jesus, yeah, he's great. He is. Don't let me hear, let me hear you sit here otherwise. Um, but there's something about the event of the cross that should make us scared. Because this event, more than any other in history, should scare you the most. And it's because in the death of Jesus, we see God's settled stance toward our sin. He hates it. It's offensive. It's evil. And he will punish it. And what we see in Jesus' death is the very thing that awaits all of us because of our sin. And what about the resurrection of Jesus? You know, Easter Sunday's coming up soon. Yay, life. Well, let's have a look at Acts chapter 17. This is what Paul says to a bunch of people who aren't yet Christians. Some do become Christians. He says this, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, Game of Thrones got it wrong. Winter isn't coming. Judgment is coming. And the God who Rahab declares to be the God of heaven and on earth has appointed Jesus to judge, not just Jericho, but up there in verse 31, the world. And the mighty work of resurrection that declares that judgment is coming is not just broadcast to the people of Canaan as it is in Joshua 6, but again in verse 31, to everyone. And so what we see first and foremost in the death and resurrection of Jesus is God giving us a warning. And it's one that, like the Canaanites should make you melt with fear. But the Christian gospel never leaves us with fear. It moves us to faith. And this is what we see in Rahab's story. Look at how Rahab responds there in verse 12 and 13. You see, she's the only one who gets this. Everyone else in Jericho sees it, but they don't do anything about it. And she's told us already, they're packing it. Uh, They've seen the writing on the wall. They're scared, witless. God's judgment is coming on them, a group of people who are renowned for their wickedness and evil. So we're talking child sacrifice here. These guys aren't your kind of garden variety sinners. But she is the only one out of that entire city who asks for mercy. This is what she says here in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. That kindness word there, that's, that's, that's God's covenant love word. That's the chesed. That's, that's the love and the commitment that God gives to his people. So this is what she is asking for. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now, again, what she says here is profound. Uh, this time, not because of the insight, when she saw that God was God of heaven and earth, but because of its cost. Because in asking for mercy, what is she doing? Well, she is turning her back on her people, her customs, her way of life, her livelihood as a prostitute. And she is choosing to follow after the true and living God, the God of heaven and earth. Now, I don't know whether you've ever thought about that kind of cost, what that looks like to do it, but, but here's my attempt at trying to help you understand what it's like. It is like you today leaving this lecture hall, selling all of your possessions, burning all of your personal records and documents, and then moving to another country like Iran, for example. I'm not picking on Iran. I'm just choosing something as far away from Australia in terms of culture and livelihood as possible. 
and going to a place where the system of government and the way of life is so radically different from the laid-back Aussie culture that most people will think it's unthinkable. That's what it looks like. That's what Rahab is doing here. But it's actually more than that, right? Because she's not just moving countries and going, all right, I'm just going to live a different way. What Rahab is doing in this moment, even though it's in the privacy of her house with these two spies, is that she is declaring publicly that the Australian way of life, to continue the metaphor, is not just different, but offensive and wrong. So those ideals of mateship and equality, the Anzac spirit, the fair go for every Aussie, what she is saying is those things are wrong and horrible and I want to have nothing to do with them. That is what Rahab is doing at this point. And it's the sort of decision and declaration uh, that can only come because she has been persuaded by something so magnificent and so convincing that she has to do something with it. She can't just leave it there. She has been so persuaded that God is facing her in judgment and that that God is the true and the living God and that she, like every other person in heaven above and earth below, must face that judgment. And because she knows herself to be a sinner, she pleads to God for mercy. It's a bit of an odd place to run, isn't it, when you think about it? Normally you run away from the judge, but she runs to it. And in doing the counterintuitive thing, what she provides for us is a model of faith, a model of how we should respond to God's judgment. And it's a movement from fear to faith. Two times in the New Testament, Rahab is commended for her faith. Once in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, uh, and then again in James chapter 2. And this is what James says, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute... See, this follows her around, by the way. Like, she's always the prostitute. Um, So she never really throws that off her. Uh, Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? So there's your juxtaposition for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And I want you to notice here what she is being commended for. It's that last little phrase there. It's faith with deeds. She's not dead but alive. She's counted righteous. Her faith... What she believes about the reality she finds herself in, I'm in Jericho, I'm facing God's judgment, it is matched by her deeds. But this is not true for anyone else in Jericho. They know their time's up, they've seen the mighty works, but they don't move from their faith, from their fear to their faith. They leave their lives unchanged. They don't commit to the massive reformation of life that Rahab did. Rahab goes, No, I believe that God is God in heaven. I need to do something about that. I am now going to save these spies because I know that they are his people. And I just want to ask the question before we move on. How true is this for you? Christianity's there, you know, I get it. We we, we believe it. It's it's sort of there. I've kind of grown up with it. Yeah, Jesus, I get him. He's cool. But I don't act on it. It doesn't give shape to my entire life. It doesn't prompt my decisions. It doesn't stop me from doing certain things and prompt me to do other things. Because if that's you and you don't see Christianity shaping every aspect of your life night and day, then I want to say with respect, I think you've got a problem. Because you've either left everything to follow Jesus like Rahab has, or you're still in Jericho, still under God's judgment. But what the story of Rahab tells us 
is that even though God is just and will not leave any sin unpunished, he is merciful and he will welcome anyone who turns to him in repentance, anyone who seeks refuge in him from his wrath. And so what we see in this story is Rahab is welcomed. You have a look there in verse 14. The spies promise Rahab mercy. And then in the verses that follow, we won't spend too much time with them. A deal is hammered out. And that tension that the storyteller has kind of put on the shelf over here, he decides to take it down. He puts it down. And we discover that Rahab will keep their secret. And she will be the means by which the spies escape. And the tension is relieved. She goes and lets them through the wall. It's a sure sign of her repentance and allegiance that it has shifted from her people to the true and living God. And what we see is a sinner, a pagan, receiving mercy from the Lord. Now, at the moment, I just want to kind of take a sidestep here and just kind of address something that may be in the back of your mind uh, and, and deal with that. Uh, it, it may be that as you've read this, one of the aching questions you've got from this story is, well, hang on a minute, Rahab receives the mercy of God, but she's been lying the whole time. Like she's been hiding people. Surely that's, that's not cool. Is this, isn't that sinful? Is this kind of like a, uh, an ends justifies the means kind of situation? Is, is that how God operates? Um, what does this mean for me the next time I'm hiding ethnic minorities and the authorities come around and kind of say, Have you, are you hiding anyone? And Am I allowed to lie? Am I not? Well, the answer is this passage doesn't address that question. It neither condones or condemns it. In fact, it just lets it sail past. Because the author, the one who wrote this account, is not interested in whether or not it is morally permissible to hide spies from the authorities. We've got other parts of the Bible to help us work that one out. It's not a simple question, but this isn't the place that we go to. It doesn't answer that question. The question that it answers is this. Who can receive the mercy of God? The answer is anyone. Because who does God welcome and give mercy to in this chapter? Well, a Canaanite foreigner. This is anathema to the people of Israel. It was the Jews and the nations. It's never going to happen. A prostitute. And not just a garden variety sinner, but somebody whose godlessness stinks to the heaven. Someone who other sinners don't want to associate with. And the third one, and this one I think we, we often miss, a woman. Now, I'm not making any statements about the value of men and women here. Uh, what I'm making a statement about is what it was like back then. Uh, now, I don't know whether you noticed there, but in verse 13, you see Rahab bargaining for her father's house. It's a reversal of roles. Normally, it's the father's responsibility to care for his family. And so what we see here is a subversion of an established norm to make the point that anybody, even the people you think are beneath you and undeserving of the mercy of God, the people who are less than and deprived in society, even those people will receive mercy from the Lord if they come to the God of heaven and earth and repent. Just as an aside, it's probably worth asking the question, do you operate with that assumption when you evangelise on campus? Or do you look at the people with the tats or the dress funny and just go, oh, maybe, maybe the mercy of God isn't for them? Because God says the mercy of God is for everyone. And that should expand our vision and make us want to declare the fact that God is offering mercy and refuge from his judgment to whoever we come across. And in the case of Rahab, it is not possible to find anybody less likely to find favour with God. And yet she is the one who finds it. 
So if you fast forward kind of 13, 1400 years, uh, do you know what you discover? Well, you end up in Matthew's Gospel, first book of the New Testament, and this pagan prostitute is a direct line ancestor of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know whether you know how genealogies work. It's father to son to son to son to son. And Matthew goes out of his way to mention that at a certain point in that line, Rahab is the mother. So we're not hiding things here. God is actually going out of his way to declare to us that his mercy extends even to the most unlikely of people. If you will, it's almost encoded in his DNA because Rahab is the ancestor of Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, is not ashamed to call sinners his brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. All are welcome. And Rahab is proof of that. And I want to kind of push us here. More than that, the death and resurrection of Jesus is proof of that. Because the very thing that inspires fear in us is also the thing that inspires faith in us. Because in it, we not only see God's attitude to sin, but we see God's attitude to us. And he loves us so much that he would send his son to die in our place so that we would find a refuge from his judgment. And when we see that, we're reminded again and again that if we approach the judge seeking mercy, he will give it to us. Now, there's a whole bunch more we can say on this. We're pretty well almost at time, so I think we'll leave it there. Um, But what a treasured story. A story that goes nowhere and yet speaks to us one of the deepest truths of the gospel. That God will save any who come to him. Let's hold on to that truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you for the woman Rahab all those years ago who saw the writing on the wall and bent the knee to you, the God of heaven and earth. We pray that we will take that truth into our own lives and seek after the Lord Jesus who you have appointed as king over the world, that we will follow him with, uh, with vigour and discipline and with a whole heart uh, and turn from everything of sin and turn directly to him. And pray that that will shape us and will shape how we interact with others. That we'll have great confidence that as people hear of your judgment and your mercy, they will turn to you and live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.